Number 2. Psalms. First Quarter, 2024. John Pauline. And Bobby Joe will offer the opening prayer. Good morning, dearest Lord, creator of the heavens so vast, I find myself speechless with wonder. When you bent to breathe into Adam's lungs the breath of life, did you pause to ponder what that breath would do? Your breath was full of the creative power of word, because with your word you formed all things. And as the word made flesh, your breath invested in man the ability to create as well. Lord, we've done a poor job of creating anything beautiful. Often the power of our words and the things we choose to create only harm and hurt. Please forgive us. Create in us clean hearts today. Put within us a new spirit and give us the grace to bend and to breathe into the broken around us a hope for the future. Allow for the experiences of pain we face to mold us into tender-hearted helpers of yours that join you in the work to recreate, to bind the brokenhearted, and set at liberty those who are bruised. We thank you for your immeasurable grace that you would condescend to hear these halting words of ours. So teach us to pray, Lord, in your loving and powerful name. Amen. This is the second in a series on the Psalms. And this one in particular is entitled, Teach Us to Pray. And it draws that title from the text that is stated as a memory text. It came to pass as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So one of the purposes of the Psalms, as we've already noted, is in the area of prayer. And this particular lesson will focus on some of the more uncomfortable prayers in the Bible, when people are challenging God, calling him out, so to speak. So this will be interesting because those are passages we don't generally hear read in church. But the question I want to get us started with, and feel free to respond, and maybe a bit of a hand grenade in the room to get things started, is personal, private prayer easy or hard for you? Is personal, private prayer easy for you, or is it hard for you, is the question. I'll wait for your response. All right, Sherry? Being a strong introvert, it's a lot easier for me to have the private prayers. I pray all day. I talk with God all day and, and in the evenings. He's a good friend. But when it comes to public prayer, it's much more difficult for me. I like the private prayer. It's me and my friend. Thank you for that. Anyone else? Arthur? I find that sometimes I struggle to find the right words to say in a prayer because sometimes the prayer can end up being an obvious a set of words that I've been saying over a long period of time. So I kind of just need to say those things because I'm supposed to pray. But I found it easier when I'm praying with someone else because maybe it forces me to use a different set of words for that occasion. But when I write down my prayers now in the form of a diary, for some reason, I find that is engaging in thought and really it's, it feels like a conversation. So I struggle maybe with the speaking part when I'm alone. But when I write my prayers, I have no issues there. Well, I really resonate with that, Arthur. I've often found that sitting down and writing to God, whether you call it a letter or a prayer, is more effective for me than simply trying to speak to God in my mind or in audible words. So I resonate with your experience. Iris. I have come to deeply value prayer with trusted friends, a small intimate circle of friends, even just one person. I feel like there's often a transformation happening during prayer where I feel like I'm reaching depth of prayer that I often fail to reach. When I'm just praying on my own, I stay focused very differently. And I really think where two or three are gathered in my name and pray together, 
the presence of God is there. I, I see that. Interesting. So you're tying the idea of personal private prayer with the two or three statement of Jesus, and you find that to be the best way to truly focus your prayers. Appreciate that. Larry. It's interesting the process that personal evaluation and honesty and prayer have together, I think. At least that's been my experience. And I found once I began praying more, there were periods of time where I was really angry with how things worked out. And I was not too pleased with God because kind of like David in some of his prayers, expected God to do better. And God's probably expecting me to do better. So, but expressing that in my private prayer, I expressed it in such a way that I probably never would publicly, except maybe to one or two of my closest male friends with a degree of anger. And the interesting thing was, is the change in my attitude about what had happened was almost instantaneous. And so I found that to be a very interesting process, and it's made a big impact in my life. Thank you, all of you. This is not a subject we often find easy to talk about, and yet if prayer is at the heart of our experience with God, then it's probably something we should talk about more often than we do. Let's go to number one in the handout. There's a sense in which the book of Psalms is as much a prayer book as a hymn book. This lesson focuses particularly on prayers that occur in the context of difficult or challenging times. Psalms were often written to help the psalmist process adverse situations. They can help us process similar situations in our own minds. Now, the lesson actually offers about five reading strategies for the psalms, and feel free to comment on these, but let me just list them as we begin. First of all, read the entire psalm at a surface level. Engage in basic reflection, then pray. Psalms are of different lengths. They can be as little as a couple of verses. They can be as long as 176, but they were intended to be seen as a whole. So reading the entire psalm in one sitting before engaging in some reflection on it and prayer about it seems like a good strategy to me. Second. Consider how your personal situation corresponds to the psalmist's experience. All right, what in this particular psalmist's experience resonates with you? That's the second strategy for reading the psalms. Third, if something in a psalm challenges you, if you don't agree with it, if you find it offensive or whatever, try to see it in the light of what we know about God from the witness of Jesus. So, if the psalm doesn't sit right with you, ask yourself, the God that we see in Jesus, put that in the scripture. So how does that fit with the incredibly caring and merciful character that we saw in Jesus? How does that fit? Why would God do that? I think can be a helpful question. Fourth, look for new motives for prayer that this particular psalm might supply. So perhaps something in what the psalmist is saying about his or her personal experience resonates with your personal experience. Maybe say, you know, I've never really prayed in that way. That is something I need to consider. And then fifth, if a psalm corresponds to the situation of a person you know, then intercede in prayer for that person. So if you're reading a psalm and you say, boy, that fits so-and-so's experience, that's an invitation to prayer for that person, care for that person. It might be God's way of saying this person needs something from you or needs something from me, and that can be part of your experience. So anyway, these are some suggestions that I found in the lesson, maybe modified a little bit in a couple of places. Anyone have any other suggestion that we didn't cover here? While you're thinking about that, let's go to Psalm 105 and verse 5 because these texts seem to offer some suggestions for how we relate to God in Psalms. Psalm 105, verse 5. Remember the wonderful works he has done, his miracles, and the judgments he has uttered. One of the things I like to do whenever I'm having a congregation of pastors, like a pastor's meeting or a convention or something like that, and there's a group of pastors out there, I'll often ask the question, what is worship? 
and invite them to respond. What do you understand by worship? And it's interesting that rarely do we draw close to the biblical definition. When you read lots of Psalms, when you read the practices of Israel in the Pentateuch and in Samuel and Kings and so on, you'll find that in worship, the Israelites tended to express that in terms of recounting what God has done. So the center of worship for the Israelites was telling the stories of what God has done, what God's done for them as a people, what God's done for them personally. And I'll often use a lot of illustrations from Deuteronomy and Psalms and other places. The heart of worship for the Israelites was telling and retelling what God has done. I wonder how often Adventist or Christian worship approaches that purpose. Do we think of worship as a time to tell each other what to do? Do we think of it as a time for entertainment? How do we think of worship? For the Israelites, it was telling what God had done for them as a people and for them individually. So the essence of worship, I think in the biblical sense, is what God has done. And the New Testament picks up on that because the greatest, mightiest act of God, the one that most clearly calls for praise and remembrance, is the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection is the exodus of New Testament experience. The exodus was often the theme of many of the Psalms and many of the worship experiences of Israel. Lord God brought you out with mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Deuteronomy, that probably appears 30 times. So what God did in bringing them out of the exodus was central to Israel's worship experience. In the New Testament, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is at the center of the worship experience. What God has done for us in Christ. Colossians 3.16 is another text that speaks to the same issue. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. All right, so a piece of worship advice here in Colossians is singing. Very important, and I think that's one thing the younger generation today is very strong in. When we see youth worship services, often singing is a much bigger part of the service than it is in more traditional liturgies where you have your opening hymn and your closing hymn and maybe a couple of organ preludes and things like that. But in the more youthful worship today, often it's song after song, sometimes five, six, seven in a row, and that it's at the heart of worship. And it's in the songs where the mighty acts of God can often be praised. James 5.13. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. <laughs> That's interesting. So if you're in trouble, pray. If you're happy, sing songs. And the two are not different. The two can be two sides of the same coin. So it's suggesting that depending on our mood can affect how we approach God in a strong sense. Well, let's go in number three to Psalm 44. And I invite you to join me there. And we're going to spend some time on this psalm. And this is one that probably is almost never read in church as a whole. Parts of it may be selected, but this psalm as a whole is not one that we would often hear in church. So let's just experience it together. And Terry, I'd suggest through verse 8. It's actually two stanzas in the original, but they're of a similar type. So verses 1 through 8. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old, and with your own hand drove out the nations. But them you planted, you afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm give them victory. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your countenance, for you delighted in them. You are my king and my God. You command victories for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down our assailants. For not in my bow do I trust, 
nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to confusion those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. All right, here you can see exactly what I was just talking about. The heart of worship is talking about what God has done. So the praises in these first verses are all related to the mighty things that God had did. And it begins with the Exodus experience, and particularly the entrance into Canaan, and how God was with them at every step of the way, and he became their king. They pushed back their enemies, and God brought them victory. So sounds pretty good so far. Okay, this is one of those happy psalms, but it's not. Let's go on to verses 9 through 16, the next two stanzas, which tell a very different story. Yet you have rejected us and abased us and have not gone out with our armies. You made us turn back from the foe and our enemies have taken spoil for themselves. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and my shame has covered my face at the words of the taunters and revilers, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All right, so things are a little different here. In a sense, this is almost a critique of Israel's normal worship, because I've often, in talking about worship being the recounting of God's acts, how this is at the heart of how God's power is unleashed in the present. But here's a psalmist who practices worship in the right way, recounting the mighty acts of God in the past and saying, this is what my faith is grounded in. But then he shifts my experience does not equal my praise. My worship is talking about a reality I don't recognize in my own experience. God may have done this stuff back then, but he's sure not doing it today. And so in this psalm, you have God's seeming absence and rejection of them. There's always a temptation when you feel God's absence to say, this must be my fault, you know? But the psalmist here doesn't accept blame for God's rejection. He says it's inexplicable. We've been praising you. We've been doing what you've asked us to do, and yet nothing from you, yet silence, yet rejection. Uh, Verses 17 to 22. All this has come upon us, yet we have not forgotten you or been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the haunt of jackals and covered us with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a strange God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Because of you, we are being killed all day long and accounted as sheep for the slaughter. All right, so the psalmist here is very clear. We're not to blame for this. We have not done anything contrary to what God has asked us to do. In fact, the first eight verses are a beautiful example of Israelite worship that you'll find all the way through the Old Testament. But everything's kind of turned south since. So the question now becomes, is the psalmist going to fix this? Is the one who inspired the psalmist going to fix this? Verses 23 through 26. Rouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For we sink down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. So here you come to the end of the psalm, and there's no resolution. It's just left with this cry of help. Normally, we like the Psalms where the cry of help is at the beginning and God responds and everything's hunky-dory at the end. This is not that Psalm. Why do you think we don't read Psalms like this in church? Kind of challenges everything, doesn't it? Arthur. 
I want to think these psalms are very uncomfortable because we don't like this psalm doesn't have a favorable conclusion. So if we were to have any discussions of this nature, we have a fear that maybe in the process of questioning, we may discover something contrary to what we have always believed. So maybe it's safer not to even question. There's that fear that maybe in questioning, we are offending him by those very questions that we are raising. And I was almost going to ask whether that was a public psalm or a private one, but I guess in a public space, none of us are very safe to raise any doubts because we don't know how our fellow brethren would interpret our questioning. Can I just end with this one? In my culture, when there is maybe grieving to death, the typical response to the one who is questioning is they weep, is to tell them, don't question, just keep quiet. Don't say all those negative things. Because in my culture, it's not acceptable to be questioning because that's maybe a sign of losing faith when you raise those questions. But maybe I'm getting from these Psalms that that's part of the grieving process as well, to express mm. all those doubts and to question God because that's how we are feeling in the moment. And we hope by raising these issues, we will get his attention, as it were, and he will respond to us. So, Arthur, my challenge to you is to preach or teach on Psalm 44 one of these days. It was in your culture and see see what kind of impact that that would have. And I think sometimes people need God's permission to do that which is uncomfortable, to that which custom and culture have told them is not appropriate. And yet when you see it in the scripture, as we see in the Psalms, it can break us away from some of our comfortable assumptions. Yeah, I appreciate that. Livius. So I don't know if I'm on the right track here, but it almost seems like the author is in denial a little bit. I'm looking at verse 9, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our enemies. We have stories that are contrary to this statement. And in 17, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Again, there's stories and history and recordings of what they actually did and what actually happened. So I wonder if we don't like to read this because it actually shows us, it reveals to us what we actually did and what actually happened. And we don't want to confront that maybe we were responsible for some of these things. And God is always there. God is always willing to help. But when we push back, there's not much he can do and help us with. But Livius, this is inspired scripture. Can we simply say, well, the writer is wrong here. You know, God didn't abandon them. He just thinks that way. It's just interesting. The God that we know and love included this in the scriptures. So I think one of the things is, is maybe challenges the comfortable way that we often speak about God. And in many ways, this psalm sounds like Job, because in the book of Job, very similarly, God is silent. You can't get through. I know I didn't do anything wrong, you see. And God confirms for Job, no, you didn't do anything wrong. But the friends were all saying that. That defeats our comfortable culture. We can't allow for that. So, yeah, very interesting. This psalm's challenging to the core. Daniel? In Hebrew, the book of Psalms is called Tehillim, praises. Yet when you count the psalms of complaint, outnumber the psalms of thanksgiving. <laughs> and it teaches us that even in those difficult situations, there are reasons for praises to God, and somehow that situation ultimately can be reversed and can turn ultimately to a praise. But the interesting thing here is that it's not about the reality, it's how the psalmist feels. And anyone who is married understands that, that I can argue to my wife that if she says, Daniel, I feel that you don't spend much time with me, I can take my calendar and say, no, that's not exactly true, because two weeks ago I spent 10 minutes, and one month ago I spent five minutes with you, so what you are telling, it's not exactly exact science, <laughs> you know, but that doesn't matter, because if she feels that way, it's a reality for her, 
The interesting thing is that these psalms of complaint always start with me. Look at me, God. Listen to me. I am in trouble. And then it's not polite. So accuses God of abandonment, of murder, falling asleep at job. Mm -hmm. But the important thing is that expresses what he feels. And sometimes this can turn into a psalm of reorientation where he gets it off his chest and then he says but it's good for me to come closer to you now i see it differently and some as the one that we read 44 it does not come at all and it brings the question as you mentioned back from job why do we serve god do we serve god because of the commercial faith that he gives us what we want and the goodies and we praise him only when the goodies are coming or do we serve him even when the things are as the psalm is expresses let me file this complaint with you because everything is supposed to be different but in my experience it's not and i need to get it off my chest and the psalmist do it jeremiah does it and it's an important inspired part of the christian experience that helps us to process the reality of life so the inspiration here may simply be saying i validate your feelings they are important to me they are the essence of authenticity. And God is just, in placing this in the scripture, he's not giving us a hunky-dory answer. He places it in the scripture to say, you haven't forsaken me when you say these kinds of words. You are expressing from your heart genuine experience. And I love that, I think, is what I hear God saying and placing this psalm. And it wasn't necessary. If the psalms had been 140 long, we probably wouldn't have noticed what we were missing. But these psalms of complaint are validating our humanity. Lou? Sometimes when you go through David's experience as he's writing the different psalms, you just have to wonder if he wasn't kind of bipolar. He had wonderful highs and very difficult lows, but God allowed it to be there because for our own encouragement. So when somebody is discouraged to plow on through and know that God is there and he will always be there, even though it doesn't always feel like it. Well, manic depressive is one way that people survive a traumatic childhood. And a person can be high as a kite for weeks on end, and then suddenly you never see them for a long period of time. That can be challenging in relationships and friendships to go back and forth with David, certainly seems to be like it. And keep in mind, David was the youngest, very possibly from an affair that his father may have engaged in, not respected at all by his brothers, challenging situation to grow up in. And he's the one that's out doing all the work while the brothers are having good time at home. David did not have an easy childhood. And so you can see consequences of that in his life and even in his prayers. Rita? And yet when we come to the end of that Psalm 44, as you say, the first bit is saying, this is what we've been told by our ancestors and how close you were to him. But that's not my experience. That's not our experience now. But yet at the end, they're not rejecting God. But they still believe he's there and can come and help them. May not be the case now, but we know you're there. Come and redeem us. But the interesting thing, I think, also in what you say is that the ground for trust is often in what God has done in the past. If you've got to be constantly affirmed in order to trust God, there'll be times when you don't. But the trust was built on the past, and it survived the present by its skin of its teeth, so to speak. All right, Neil? Is this a psalm of David? Do we have any background on this psalm? I've got a footnote over here that says it's for the music director by the Korahites. That's a good point. I noticed that a little bit earlier when I think it was Arthur was asking a very good question. Got lost in the shuffle there, but is this a personal psalm or is it a public psalm? And the answer is public psalm, sons of Korah. Now, some of David's psalms are more personal, but this is definitely for worship. So the Israelites found this psalm to be a value for worship. Maybe they only sang the first eight verses, I don't know. But this is a good point, yes. I think David's experience, of course, is a towering 
presence within the Hebrew scriptures and a good illustration of this kind of manic depressive up down. But yes, thank you for reminding us that in fact, this was one of the ones by the sons of Korah, which were evidently the choir or music leaders at one point in the temple service. Ashley. Yeah, I know it can be, especially depending on the culture and what you've been told about questioning and asking like a scary thing to ask a question, maybe you don't already have like a neat and tidy answer to. But I, at least in my experience, sometimes it is very helpful just to verbalize your question and not hold it in. I think it seems to sometimes just like open up maybe part of your brain to like maybe searching out. Or sometimes I feel like, yeah, like when I'm like write something out or I say it out loud, it's almost like it processes differently maybe in my brain and I can come to maybe conclusions or answers. Or if you talk to someone else about it, it can really be an opportunity for learning and connection. So even if you don't find the answers right away, just I think asking it and allowing your brain to be processed and like search for that over time can be helpful, but also being okay with leaving some things on the shelf for later and sitting in that discomfort um, is okay too. Yeah, for me, writing sort of engages the whole brain. If you're thinking of a pen, you can see the words on the page. You can hear the pen scratching the paper. You can feel it in your hand. It's a whole person experience. Whereas just hearing a tape, for example, or hearing a recording maybe engages more just one of the senses, et cetera. So prayer, of course, the speaking, you hear it, you speak it, et cetera, but it might not be so visual. And so for many people, I think writing it out, the question is to what degree is a keyboard a substitute for a pen? Will that have the same impact if you're just keyboarding things? And I, I kind of feel not, but maybe that's just my generation. And But to engage as many of the senses as possible engages the whole brain. And so writing out prayers, for some at least, can be a very good way to engage the whole person. Iris? I always feel like I have to speak up for David. <laughs> <laughs> because I think we're being too harsh on him. Isn't the, the human reality such that... With everything good that God blesses us with, whether this is a friendship, whether that is the relationship to our spouse, a child, or our children, even the material blessings that God gives, all of that is vulnerable to loss for all of us. So if we look at life how it really is, we will lose it at some point. And we will lose our professional identity at some point, no matter how gratifying it has been. We are vulnerable to loss. And part of life is coming to terms with loss. Those of us who are in healthcare, we walk by people who are facing the loss of their health. And that's painful. That's hard. And in those moments when that happens, when your world seemingly falls apart, I think we can resonate with Psalms like this one. And I think the big question then is, how can we be a community of faith that takes a mature stance on this and says, yes, life includes suffering. And the Christian community is called to respond to suffering with compassion, to create that safe space where we can process, where we can grieve, where we can cry out that pain to God. And let me tell you again, small group experiences are invaluable. Maybe the bulk of the church can't take it, but if you can have one or two friends in your church community with whom you can be real, with whom you can be raw, with whom you can pray through situations where there is no easy fix, then you are blessed because in the end, your faith will be strengthened and God will comfort you through those people who stay with you in that uncomfortable space of walking through grief, through suffering, through loss. And I love your defense of David. And I think you're absolutely right, at least in a one-sided sense. You know, David is the pinnacle of wonderful on the one side. These Psalms are just incredible. 
you know. On the other hand, he's also the pinnacle of mess-ups in a real sense when you see what he did to his family, you know, his sons and all that. And let's not forget that he accepted a wedding challenge to murder random people on the street, totaling 200. How many of us would have any membership in the church if we came close? You know, so David kind of is the pinnacle of everything that can go right and everything that can go wrong at the same time. Definitely a now and not yet kind of person. Daniel. The important thing to remember when we read Psalms like this, that this is without parallel in ancient world. So as Arthur mentioned, in so many cultures, you know, you have to dance around the big boss. You have to say things that are pleasing and does not bring displeasure and upset the big boss. Yet, here we have prayers to the deity that is even rude by many cultural standards. Wake up, God. Why are you sleeping? As we read in verse 21 and 24, we have not forgotten you. Why have you forgotten us? But there is still an implication behind that God who made heaven and earth should care that we are hurting. And he does. And that's where God can work with and take it from there. So once again, it shows how different is the biblical model from the prevailing models of spirituality in those days. And that often our spirituality is more based on pagan ideas that you have to be careful in how you dance around God because you might even get your situation worse. While here you have this raw emotion and downright rude way of saying, Lord, this is the reality, how I see it. You are asleep at your job. You have forgotten us, and you should do better things than this. And God doesn't say, that's the end of our friendship. I had it. How do you dare to speak to me like that? As most of our parents growing up would say to us, I am your mom. You don't talk to me like that. <laughs> yeah, actually, the third lesson of this series gets into what some might call the royal psalms, uh, where God is king. God as ruler. And we will explore this idea of the different concepts of God. And you mentioned the one with the pagans, the idea of the appeasement God, that you have to say just the right words or he won't accept you. It's a very, very important how unique this is in the ancient world. And it tells us that our God is not like the gods we would manufacture and have manufactured in the past. So, why are these rarely read in church? Probably simply because they're uncomfortable. For many, it's uncomfortable talking about feelings at all. For others, it's uncomfortable in any way to question God. And the moment you seem to be doing that, you'll have arrows shot at you from every direction. I can only imagine what might have happened to some of these psalmists when their best friends got a hold of what they were saying about God. So, yes, it's uncomfortable for us. But at the same time, it tells us amazing things about God. And I think that one of the strongest, I had the privilege and the responsibility for four years at the seminary at Andrews University of being appointed to be the primary counselor of these young pastors, some 350 at a time. And my office was full. And the tales of woe were kind of like what you read in the Bible. There was a lot. There's nothing about the ministry that absolves people of their past or makes them necessarily more fitted to deal with it. People may often go into ministry in the hopes of helping themselves to cope with things that they have experienced. But to, to walk with them, it, it just really imprinted on me that allowing people to truly express what has happened to them and how they feel about it is the first step in healing. And if we can't express those feelings, we are imprisoned with them. So these Psalms, I think, is God telling us, get some of that stuff out in a safe place. There are things you should never tell in public simply because they do as much harm as good, having shared them. But with someone who is safe, and certainly God is always one of those someones, to get it out, express it, tell the story, tell it over and over if necessary can be a critical piece of healing. Lou? Somebody who has never suffered can seem a little bit shallow. And so I think suffering going through things helps us to develop empathy 
and compassion for others who are going through similar things. Mm -hmm. Excellent point. Thank you for that. Let's go to Psalm 22. It's another one of these complaint psalms, another one where God has seemingly abandoned, but this one ends in a bit of a better place. So let's work our way through it. And again, Terry, we'll do the whole psalm, but we'll do it a piece at a time. I'd like you to start with verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but find no rest. All right. So this psalmist is in a pretty bad place. He feels truly and totally abandoned by God. But then verse three to five. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our ancestors trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. All right. So here, the author starts reciting the mighty acts of God in the past. In that sense of abandonment, he goes to the tried and true method to repeat what God has done in the past. And by connecting with what God's done in the past to perhaps affect what happens in the present. Verses six to eight. But I am a worm and not human, scorned by others and despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Okay, and verse 8 here is not a compliment. This is not a song of praise. It's a mockery. You trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver you. You know, stop crying out for help. Your God has abandoned you here. Lou? It makes me think of when Jesus was going through his final hours and his call was, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? I mean, God hadn't forsaken him, but he sure felt that separation of the weight of the sin. Yes, and he was definitely quoting Psalm 22. Yeah. Just those words. I don't think there's any question about that. Verses 9 to 11. Yet it was you who took me from the womb. You kept me safe on my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Now notice the difference between this and verses 3 to 5. In verses 3 to 5, he was reciting God's mighty acts for Israel. But in verses 9 to 11, he's talking about God's mighty acts for him or her personally. You brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast upon you. My mother's womb, you have been my God, etc. So he's recalling not just the mighty acts of God for Israel, but also his own personal history. And yet, verses 12 to 18 continue. Many bulls encircle me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs are all around me. A company of evildoers encircles me. My hands and feet have shriveled. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves. And for my clothing, they cast lots. All right. So here he has tried traditional worship. He has tried personal devotions. Things still don't seem to be any better. Really bad situation. Verses 19 to 21. But you, O Lord, do not be far away. O my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen you have rescued me. All right, so here's an appeal to God still to rescue in this particular situation. But notice what shifts now in verses 22 to 26. 
I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard me when I cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. So here the psalmist offers personal praise to God. You don't sense that the situation has necessarily improved, but his attitude has significantly improved. He's beginning to see things with different eyes. And then notice how it ends up in verses 27 to 31. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. To him, indeed, shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. So here he moves from personal praise to kind of universal praise. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. Dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. The rich of the earth feast and worship and so forth. So he's able to go past the me, the I and the me. Daniel just mentioned that these Psalms tend to begin with I, a very self-centered focus. And in this case has ended up seeing things not just through God's eyes, but seeing things through the universal human experience. You remember we said the Psalms can be read in two different ways. First of all is the experience of Israel, but second of all in relation to Jesus Christ. And this is one of those Psalms that Jesus quotes directly, and in this case quotes on the cross in his darkest moment. Jesus thinks about this Psalm, and in his darkest moment he expresses loneliness. Loneliness is tragic. I think there's medical research that suggests that loneliness, especially for the elderly, is one of the primary health disparities, that people with chronic loneliness tend to live shorter lives, less healthy lives, etc. So Jesus here is expressing, imagine the loneliness of someone who has been absolutely filled with the presence of another infinite being from eternity past, and now finding a separation from that eternal being. Imagine the depth of the loneliness like nothing we've ever experienced. In the midst of that, he turned to this psalm. All right, Rita? It was a few weeks ago I was considering this, and I think sometimes we forget that the Jewish people knew, certainly the Pharisees, and the teachers knew the whole of the Old Testament by heart. And Jesus only need to recite that first line, and they would know the rest of it. And it's the end of it. I think it's the end of that psalm that Jesus was pointing them to when he was saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It would go all through it. What was it that God said at the end? What did the psalmist say at the end of that psalm? What is the outcome? And I think that points to what Jesus is wanted the outcome to be. The whole world would know about the Lord. Yeah, yeah, very well said. And that conviction about the future can also be critical in all of this. The book Desire of Ages talks about that moment when Jesus says, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Psalm 22 moment. And she says, at that moment, he could not see through the portals of the tomb. As Jesus was dying, it was not clear to him that he would, in fact, be raised from the dead. He began to wonder if this was his final act and if this would be all over. And yet, as you mentioned, Lou, in the psalm, there's a bright ending. And Jesus grasped by faith. He trusted the God that he had known from eternity. He trusted the word that he had helped inspire. 
And in that confidence, he says, regardless of what happens 36 hours from now, I will trust in the God to the very end. And his last words were, into your hands, I commend my spirit, the, the expression of total trust in a God who just a few moments before had seemed eternally absent to him. So this psalm enabled Jesus to express his loneliness and to look beyond the current moment to the future that he would have with God. Daniel. The important thing in biblical theology is to see how the storyline develops. So if you look at the major images that you find in the book of Psalms for God, you can make a list and very quickly discover they are, you are my shield, you are a high tower where I run when I am in trouble, you are a fortress, you are a high place, you are a refuge, you are the rock, the stronghold, horn of salvation. And when you only see these pictures, you can have this paranoid perspective they are all against me, they are after me, but if I can just run to the top of the mountain, if I can go into this fortress, then I am going to be okay. And of course, all of us love to sing, God is a mighty fortress, as Luther did, and it's a tremendous, uh, spiritually uplifting psalm and song as well. But the interesting thing is that if you look at the New Testament, how many of those metaphors are going to be used for God? zero. And the New Testament is going to pick up the shepherd. God is like a good shepherd, God is like a good woman, and God is like a good father. And so you have this Psalm 22, 23, and 24 as the shepherd psalms. Now you know what happens if a wolf or a lion kills the shepherd. That's it. That's the end for the sheep. They have no hope. And Psalm 22 shows beautifully that what was seen as the great tragedy, that the shepherd, the good shepherd is killed and dies, actually turns out to be the greatest blessing. By the end of the psalm, he's uplifted. There is the coronation, and it turned out to be the greatest blessing for the sheep. So we also need to see this storyline, how the New Testament is going to work with the book of Psalms, and which things will be picked up by the New Testament authors, and how the change of perspective helps to see the things that you don't see at the moment, because David did not sit down and said, let me write how one day the Messiah is going to feel so that he has something to quote when he's on the cross. No, he describes his own situation, how he feels at the given moment. And Jesus just uses that as a reflection of what he goes through. Yes, very, very clearly illustrating the two levels by which we can read the Psalms, both as an Israelite book and also as a Christ-centered piece. Let's go to number five, and particularly the question in the latter part there. What do you think of Ellen White's advice for times like this? So she's speaking to the kind of situations in Psalm 22 and 44. And she says this, when temptations assail you, when care, perplexity, and darkness seem to surround your soul, look to the place where you last saw the light. I've used that advice often, but in the light of these Psalms, is that still good advice? What do you think? Very central to this chapter of Ministry of Healing that page 250 is in. It's called Mind Cure. It is her counsel for those who are struggling mentally with their health. Iris. I think it is still good advice because I think the revelation of God in the mighty acts of God in the Bible, but also as we keep track of pivotal encounters that we have had with God in our own life and faith experience. They speak truth in a moment where our eyes, our human eyes cannot see clearly because our vision is distorted by grief, by what it feels like. And that reality seems to communicate God has walked off. God doesn't care. But what is true about God is 
that he is faithful, that he is committed to us, that he will never leave or forsake us. And I think that is mirrored in the biblical account of God's faithfulness, of God not leaving and abandoning his children in the desert, but seeing them through and bringing them to Canaan. And I think that is also true as we remember how God has led us in the past, individually and collectively. And so I think it's good advice to look back on the truth that stands. And, and it is the character of God. It is who he is at the core and that we can trust no matter what reality feels like at the moment. And I've encouraged people to keep a special kind of diary. A lot of people like to keep a diary and just leave it general. But I think a particular form of diary, which I would call the book of providence, and that is whenever you have an experience in life where God is particularly near or where God delivers you or where something special happens and you see the hand of God and to write that story down while it's still fresh in your mind. And it can be so encouraging at some point in the future. I've often said that the best devotional book you will ever read is the one you write yourself. And that's where you've just taken the time day by day, month by month, when there are special experiences where you can say God's hand was at work here. You take the time to write those down. And on those dark days, you can go back to those experiences and see, well, God was with me here. It doesn't feel that way right now, but I trust that God remains with me and see me through. All right, Nancy. I've been reading through Leviticus and Deuteronomy recently, and this situation reminds me so much of how panicked and worried the Israelites were when the report came back. And these were realities, how large the people were, how massive the buildings, that no way could they attack this place and win. And they forgot to look back. They forgot to look back at so much what God had done. And it's a lesson to me because it's so easy. Fear is so strong and the loss, grief is so powerful. It's easy to forget to look back. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that testimony. Yes, Sherry. When I look back at my own life, when I was younger, it was a lot harder because there weren't as many experiences to look back on. And I'm finding that as I get older, all of us go through quite a bit during our lives. And so it's easier to look back and see all of God's footsteps. But it seems to me that it would be good for us to watch out for our young people because they don't have the length of experiences that we have. And it may be valuable to put our arms around them and watch for what is happening to them and find ways to tell them the story of what happened to us or to encourage them in some way. I think they're more vulnerable than those of us who have gone through a lot of pain and have been helped by God. So I just want to watch out for the young people. Mm, thank you for that. Yes. Arthur. I also want to think that God is patient with us, even when we seem not to remember all the good things that he has done. For some reason, sometimes, even when we know the good things that God has done in the past, when there's a new crisis, this crisis feels like it's the end of the world. And for some reason, it blocks your vision of all the good things that God has done in the past. Suddenly, everything that he has done in the past doesn't matter because in the presence of this crisis, I cannot see him. I cannot feel him. I just want to make reference maybe to Elijah, Mount Carmel, and the next, whether it's the same evening or the next day, Jezebel is breathing down his throat. And that same person who was so courageous on the mountain, uh, causing the fire to come down, consuming the stone, the firewood, the water, everything, marvelous displays of God's power just from a minute-long prayer. And he even goes ahead to kill those 400-plus prophets. You know, that was a massive show of power and confidence and all that. But the next day, he is running away into a desert or some forest. And he even is saying, I want to die 
that's what he's saying. I want to die. I'm done with it. I'm the only prophet that's left. I just want to die. Mm. And I see God being patient with him because God goes ahead to provide food for him because probably doesn't want even to eat because he wants to die. But God gives him food and God goes ahead maybe to cause the earthquake, the wind, then the still small voice because probably that's what will end up getting his attention. And God is trying to say, no, you still have a mission. There's still many other prophets that are faithful to me. So you're not the only one maybe who's under threat. So I think God is patient with us even when we seem to forget all the good things that he has done. He's patient with us all the way. As we draw to a close, one more question. You'll find it in number six. How can we benefit from psalms of lament even in the joyous seasons of life? The joyous seasons, we would tend to move other directions, I think, in our scripture study. But these laments, these complaints that have been lodged in scripture, what role might they have when everything's going well? Iris. You know, I think here again, we are at risk for faulty thinking. When everything is going well, we might conclude it's because of our wisdom in making smart choices. It's because we are so great in holding things together. And I think these depth of the human experience show us, <laughs> they tell us that the truth is that we are vulnerable, that things can go in a very different direction very fast, even without our causing it. You know, yes, we can mess up. That's one reason. But it can also be for reasons that we have not deserved, right? But that as we have lived through these experiences, God has shown himself repeatedly merciful and he has brought us out of darkness into a better place. All right. Thank you. Ashley Fuller. Yeah, I totally agree with what Ira said. And I also feel like those experiences can make you so much more helpful and valuable to other people that are going through them. Because even if you maybe are going through a great spell, which is awesome, usually there's probably someone in your vicinity that isn't having maybe like the best luck in life at the moment. And yeah, I really feel like even though I wouldn't wish a lot of the things I've experienced or anyone's experienced, they really have given me more opportunity to connect with people in ways I might not otherwise have been able to or been able to understand experiences that before I maybe was more judgmental about or yeah made assumptions about. So yeah, I think there is a really valuable opportunity to be there for other people by having those experiences and remembering them when other people around you are not having such a great time. Yeah, I think these psalms can help keep us in reality. You know, I, I think of parents. If you happen to have a couple of really compliant children, they were just born compliant, just so easy to keep straight and so on. The first thing that comes in, Ashley, is the temptation to say, my parenting skills are better than everybody else's. You know, instead of saying, thank God, you know, that we didn't get the child from the dark side, we just say, oh, you know, we must be doing pretty good. And it is so easy for us when times are good to think that it's because we're uniquely deserving. And so, so the Psalms can really keep us plugged into reality. And I think perhaps more than anything else, they can help the church avoid irrelevance. Because when the church is in that happy place, where everything's great, you know, and, and I think particularly of some of our Pentecostal friends, so the whole point of worship is to boost us up when maybe things aren't going so well, and say everything is happy, and everything is jumping up and down, and big smiles, and, and stuff like that. It can seem totally irrelevant to somebody who went there because life was really getting them down, and these psalms can help us stay plugged into reality so that the message of the church is a whole message, not just a, a partial one. Sherry. I'm wondering if part of the reason it's hard for us to read these or to think of the bad things in Psalms is that often it brings up fear, and fear is so powerful. And when we read that, we think, yes, everything is going well now, but around the corner, 
we can't see the future, but we can imagine what may be waiting for us, especially in troubled times, maybe like the world is today. It's very easy to let fear take charge. And then we don't think straight. We can't process things well or make good decisions. And I like what God seems to always say, don't be afraid. And that's easier said than done. But I think he's always there to help us to review that when we feel this sense of ominous fear that maybe something bad is about to happen because things have been so good. I think he's there to help us develop that deep nurtured faith, that trust in him, that no, he is trustable. We can trust him. We know he is faithful. Bad things, yes, may happen, but he will be there. He's been there in the past and we'll be okay. Even if it's tough, we'll be okay. He'll have his arms around us. Can't think of a better way to draw this to a conclusion. Thank you for that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, for some of us, we have plenty of reason to be fearful for the future. Others find it easy to be fearful even when everything is going well. But fear prevents us from seeing reality. Fear tends to paralyze us and keep us from acting in ways that would be in our best interest and yours and those around us. So I pray, dear Lord, that you would be with us as we confront life's challenges, that you would help us to see you clearly even when we can't see, and may you inspire us through your word to know you more clearly than ever before. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.